Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been very well, Gary. Uh, I hear that you have been occupying the airways elsewhere. Your grand imperial design continues. You've got rid of McGurk and Sarah Ryan, and now yourself and Neve Nabreen are taking over the airwaves elsewhere. And now you've decided to come join us here this morning. Yes, for those of you who are interested in hearing my sultry tones as many times as possible in a week... I have taken over John McGurk's podcast as he's busy, and I was also heading the live stream. So for those of you who are interested, this is your third chance to hear me talk this week. What a delight that must be to the people, Michael. Yeah, you can't get too much of a good thing, isn't that the old proverb? And I timed it so well as well, because, you know, during the middle of silly season, where RTE have on their front page a story which is titled... How cats made their way into our hearts and our homes. What you really want to be doing is broadcasting multiple times. Yeah. However, when uh, Prigozhin decided to launch a putative coup against uh, Putin, we went to Italy. <laughs> yeah, our timing is impeccable. So I suppose we will we will start into it. Uh, I must again contractually remind people about the free speech event that is happening on September the 16th in the RDS. There will be a range of international speakers. It will be good fun. It will be all about the upcoming hate speech bill and the importance of free speech. Tickets are still available, although they are going quite quickly. Uh, the RDS is a large venue, but I would recommend people, if they are interested in coming, to pick up their tickets as soon as possible. I'll put a link to it below. Um, the tickets are, I think, 10 or 15 euro per person, and it should be a, a good showing. Now, last week we actually touched on personal finance, Michael, which is always a fun topic because you get a lot of responses from people ranging from, thank you, that was very helpful, to you sound incredibly smug when talking about people whose finances aren't in order. But speaking as someone who's personally... Uh, finance capacities are somewhere between zero and minus. Um, I'm I'm cheering on for the latter people. Uh, deeply uncomfortable subject for myself to be involved in, but there you go. So uh, that was personal finance uh, last week. You know what are we talking about this week? Impersonal finance. Well, NGO finance. That um, that oh, old chestnut. God. Yeah. I will. I will just say this as well. Uh, a surprising amount of people reached out to me about particular financial things and I'm not qualified to give you advice on those things uh, but what I will do is I will put a link below to a flowchart that was designed by the Irish Personal Finance Reddit which basically talks you through here is how you you know get your shit together like here's how you save here's what you should be doing and basically it starts from incredibly basic to um, not advanced but you know beyond what most people would have in Ireland I don't agree with every part of it but I think it is a it, it's a pretty good just general guideline uh, how to get your finances in order so I'll put that below because I, I you know I can't uh, start giving people financial advice Michael I can just tell you what I would have done which is usually uh, the right thing <laughs> oh god the smugness of the man is incredible anyway go on what NGO sector are we looking at and what is wrong with our finances? Why is the government not getting them enough money? Peter McVeary Trust came out uh, over the week um, and they were talking about this and the Department of Housing was talking about this. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers is coming in to do, a, um, to do an analysis, to, an, an audit 
of the financial and governance uh, of the Peter McVeary Trust, because there apparently, Michael, is cash flow problems. I found that a bit interesting because Peter McVeary is... I'm not sure what the public image of Peter McVeary Trust is, but by its finances, it is a large, large entity. It has, I think, 120-something million uh, in assets. It brings in about 50 million a year in donations. It spends over 30 million a year on staff. It has somewhere between 500 and 700 staff. I mean, it is it is a behemoth of a thing. I wouldn't have thought it was surprising. I mean, MacVerry, whatever you might think, and I have my own opinions about his understanding and analysis of the root causes of homelessness in Ireland and the solutions to the problems. That MacVerry is is what you might call a social entrepreneur, and the and social entrepreneurs like business entrepreneurs tend to be rather engaging and creative types. I mean, the, the classic example both is uh, Richard Branson. So entrepreneurs come in, they see they see a problem, they find a solution to it, or they, find, they see a gap, and they create, they create something to fill that gap in the market that the market didn't realize it needed before. They may not necessarily be extremely good managers. And the other side of it, I mean, it is a very, it, as you say, Peter Frank, very trust, is a very substantial outfit these days. It is. It handles a lot of money. It gets a lot of revenue. It gets money from the private sector, but it also gets money from the state, quite a bit of money from the state, and handles a lot of properties and have a lot of people. That takes a lot of management. Now, I imagine when it started out, it was a, a man and a boy and a house somewhere, and that was the height of it. And I don't know, maybe he had great ambitions, but he probably didn't imagine that it was going to be this. Also, I'm not exactly sure to what extent Peter McVeary himself personally at this stage would be responsible for the day-to-day management. I'm sure they have appointed professional officers to deal with all sorts of things. But, you know, these things very often, they they start it and then their problem becomes the nature of their success. But it may also be that there's a lower expectation of them than there would be of other kinds of organizations. So they tend to get mired in practices which in other places would not persist for very long. I mean, that's a question, I think, for the the entire of the homelessness industry and, and the NGOs that are involved in it. Yeah. I mean, McFerry, the Peter McFerry Trust has quite a substantial amount of professionals involved with it and has for a considerable amount of time. So there is kind of a question there of, of exactly how this happened. I mean, they have, I think, 600 properties. That's kind of growing all the time. And there's not a lot of information out there as to exactly what's happening. Now, they're saying that they had problems because the uh, cost of living has increased and that's made fundraising more challenging. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, as with most NGOs, fundraising is individual fundraising, Michael is not the um, the majority of their income. So in 2021, they brought in 11 million or 11 and a half million from donations and legacies. Legacies would be um, where someone dies and they might leave you something in their will, whether it's cash, whether it's stock, whether it is a house or the like. 
I would say Peter McVeary Trust has probably left a, a decent amount of property in wills. Well, I'd say probably once upon a time. I, 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 I'm purely speculating on the, the experience I have of talking to members of the clergy and their experience of being left. I mean, once upon a time, it was a, it was a thing. I'm not sure if people do it as much as they did. As society becomes less religious, this kind of classically religious behaviour, I think, is in decline. Got in for, for their income for charitable activities, most of which is going to come from institutional donors because they give they don't generally give general support grants. They will give you money to do a project. Now, included in that is the cost of the staff for that project. But they brought in $11.5 million in donations and legacies and over $41 million in uh, income from charitable activities. So donations are important to them, but not to the extent that you would have thought a fall in donations, unless it was a total collapse in donations would be enough to cause a significant cash flow issue, particularly given that in 2021, um, at the end of 2021, the last of their accounts that are available at this point, they had, I believe, 2.5 million in cash and reserves. Yeah, but they have a very large staff carry. They have a, they carry a lot of people. And if, you're in, if your income declines, I mean, and you don't feel that it's an opportunity, you don't have the option of reducing the number of staff, but then your your fixed costs are going to remain high, and so it, and you're going to have to meet those out of something. And maybe you don't. Maybe the reasons you don't want to touch your cash, your cash reserves. Anyway, you know. I mean, it when you have your income declines, your fixed costs, uh, your fixed costs remain the same. Well, then you are going to potentially have a a problem with cash flow. It's interesting. They 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 talk in their accounts about their CEO. And how their CEO doesn't get top-ups and doesn't get uh, a car and doesn't get health insurance. Uh, but then they say that the CEO does get a 16% employer contribution to the CEO's defined contribution scheme, their, their pension. A 16% uh, employee contribution is very, very good. That is decent. Yeah, depending on what they're getting, like you know, it might be cheaper to just get them the car. <laughs> yeah. There is actually one other, one thing I thought was particularly strange about their, their accounts. Not strange as in, you know, something wrong, but Irish charities kind of kind of don't do this very well. So they have uh, income from investments, Michael. Yes. So, you know, over 120 million in assets. You'd expect some investment um, options there, whether it's property or whatever. Yeah. They brought in 72 euro in 2021 due to their investments. I suspect they have some prize bonds some premium bonds and they won uh, because otherwise it's very hard to explain how you can only 72 quid is not a great not a great return no and in 2020 they brought in 213 quid in investments it would be less weird if that number was zero <laughs> it does make you kind of wonder what exactly the investments are if out of nothing else but slightly pure in curiosity uh, maybe they have a post office book and every so often they send it in for interest to be totaled up and uh, divvied out yeah, it, that's it's not 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 a lot. It's deposit interest. Ah, see, it was. I told you, it's post office book. Irish charities are actually quite bad at this, but I, I do think that Irish charities should invest more. That they should have properties or or something, because they keep complaining, Michael, about things like cash flow. Mm-hmm. And you know, you might have less cash flow issues if you had set up some investments that you could actually get a sustainable rate of return from. 
I I understand your position. However, I would I would respond that if you're an Irish charity in Ireland, which is where most Irish charities are, and you go off and you make an investment, and the investment goes wrong, as investments can, then you're going to be on the wrong end of a shitty stick because it's not your job as charity to be going off making wild investments and speculative things like that. What are you doing? You should be spending that money on the poor little children. And the sick dogs, and that is what people say, Gary. If you, 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 if you're going to make an investment in something to try and generate alternative income streams and protect yourself from the vagaries of your fundraising campaigns, then you better be sure that the the choices you make are like one hundred percent nailed on. And if there were such things in the world of investment, then I think all of us would be a little bit richer than they are. So I, I, I. I take your point and I think you're right, but I do think also the culture, the Irish culture, I mean, I think it might be different, say, in the United States and people might be more forgiving about that kind of thing. But I think here, if you got it wrong, like, for example, if you bought property, but you bought it at the wrong point in the cycle, and it turned out that the bar- you, you bought it was too dear and then you saw a significant decrease after in in its value or something like that. Uh, or you you bought f- to generate rents and then the rents because disappeared because the Americans decided to move all their factories to Clonmel. Somebody will somebody will get it in the neck. And actually, speaking of investment, I was talking to someone recently about um, it was actually because I had mentioned index funds on the last um, the last podcast, and they were asking me about which index funds is the best. And there was an index fund, a global fund. And the two largest countries it was in were China and Taiwan. And I'm saying I don't think that's a good idea. One, because your largest investment could invade your second largest investment, yeah. or at least make things very, very difficult. Yeah. But I was also pointing out that I don't trust any of the financial figures that China puts out, their economic data, their unemployment rates, their growth. I don't trust any of it. And so while, yes, by investing in China, you can make massive amounts of money, I was of the opinion that you can't quantify the risk. So but you don't know how solid any of this is. And the Chinese have been very good at moving money around, basically at their will. Now, they seem to have pulled back a bit. But just after that conversation, Evergrande filed for bankruptcy, US bankruptcy. So Evergrande, or well, technically, I believe the China Evergrande group has... Um, decided it's going to restructure its debt. And Evergrande owes an astronomical amount of money. Evergrande is, I th- I'm not sure of its position now, but it was, I believe, at a relatively recent point, one of the largest construction groups in uh, China. It is a massive part of the Chinese economy. And it's been a bit of a problem to the Chinese for the last while because it was I think people were trying to figure out how bad its debts were and also what the Chinese government was going to do to step in. Because at this point, even if the country or even if the company was a basket case, the Chinese government might decide to step in to shore it up, basically. Now, I think Evergreen are, I think their debt restructuring is about 31 or 32 billion. Well, if you're talking about, sorry, if you're talking about Evergrande, the, its liabilities are around 300 billion dollars. Yeah. In total, with two hundred thirty-six billion in euros, it's already. And the thing about Evergrande is, Evergrande has uh, already defaulted in twenty twenty-one after a liquidity crisis. That um, after 
it was investigated by the state authorities and this came out that it was going to be investigated by the state authorities that there were there were there were there were internal accounting problems and then it defaulted because of liquidity now at the same time this is happening i i, I think this it's funny when you you're talking about investment opportunities genuinely the, the the thought that came into my head was i can tell you one place one property market i wouldn't be putting my money and that's china and lo and behold we, here we are talking. And I like to talk about this because we have talked about this before, previously a little bit of my insistence, because uh, I think that the, the Chinese economy is one of the, the great undiscussed issues. Uh, certain of us have now admittedly have been predicting much. The, the Chinese economy is kind of the environmental uh, crisis for for certain elements of the right in that we keep predicting it's going to happen, but you know the, the polar caps are still there. Uh, the thing about economies is they they on they unwind and unfold in different places at different speeds in different places uh, at different times, but there Evergrande is the is the is the biggest. But there's another one called Country Garden, which used to be Ireland's uh, China's largest property developer, which is also facing the default a risk of default. And I, here's it. I just find it here. This is a, a headline I came across the other day. Yeah from the Guardian, which I think would cause concern in anybody. Evergrande has filed for bankruptcy protection. And get this, firms covering 40% of Chinese home sales have defaulted. Firms covering 40% of Chinese home sales have already defaulted. Now, you're right to say, Gary, that the, the, the Chinese government has been having played you know, hide the the queen on with 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 a lot of money, moving money around, has um, trying has decided a little uh, a little while ago to get the thing up and going, and they tr- they brought in uh, some policy to try to deleverage the sector. Now within the banking, some of the people think it was too hard, it was too too quick, it was too yeah. We, we, who knows? In this, uh, the sense was it happened too drastic. It was too much, and it was too short, and it's created this spiral, so that you have a liquidity problem. But like, take country. I mentioned country garden. Country garden's liabilities in the article it says are sixty percent of the size of Evergrande, but that still is one hundred and fifty-one billion pounds, one point four trillion yuan. And it had, but this is the kicker in the, the in the Guardian article. It points out, Country Garden has nearly four times as many housing projects in China. Now, this has already happened, and it's happened a few times over the last ten years. But there's the one of the worries, Gary, is that particularly say in the case of Country Garden, that if they go into default, you have very large numbers of housing developments for which the money has been taken will not be completed. And there already are concerns in China because of economic slowdown, uh, because of unemployment. I think you remember, Gary, we discussed youth unemployment in China is bizarrely high. They have a demographic issue. There's there are whatever tens of millions of missing girls, which has created its own social problems. But 
if you suddenly start seeing across the country houses not being delivered to people who are expecting them, the potential for social unrest is perceived as being a very real one. And the Chinese don't like social unrest, Gary. Uh, they go through periods of liking it quite a lot. No, of having it quite a lot, but they don't like it. They want the mandate of heaven to be solid and firm and the, and, and the empire to be at peace. The peasants to be out there in the fields ploughing or uh, flooding the paddies. But they don't like this. They don't like the, They don't like it when the peasants start ganging up and coming for the emperor. They really, they don't like that. I've always quite liked the, the description uh, or the summary of Chinese um, history as long periods of peace and then occasionally someone will do something like declare themselves the son of Jesus Christ and lots of millions of people will die. Well, not perhaps, but certainly large numbers of people will die. But the, the thing about the Chinese economy and the, the, the country, the nation, the population, the numbers are just so large. Just here's, just as an example here, Country Garden, right? It has promised to deliver 700,000 housing units this you know, think, think of the Irish. Think in the, the in the Irish context of what a, a very large builder is going to build in a year, and think this company is going to deliver seven hundred thousand, or rather, I should say, promised. However, it has in the first six months has completed less than half the number, and has has admitted that the industry is in a period of unprecedented difficulty. the The numbers are staggering. But uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. And I think it points to a number of things. Um, I don't know if you agree with this. I I think there has been an an, an element in the West, a fairly broad sense across the whole West, left and right, that the rise of China was absolutely inevitable. It was inexorable. And it was kind of scary and frightening and exhilarating all at the same time. Certain friends on the left were secretly or not so secretly delighted that the day was coming when the Chinese were going to pass out the Americans, that the American century was over and the Chinese century was about to begin. But also, not only that, that they had had discovered a form of socialism with a hybrid capitalist element to it that could produce wealth, staggering levels of growth, lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and yet at the same time not submit to the terrible excesses of capitalism. Turns out there is nothing, or at least it looks very like there is nothing inevitable or inexorable about the rise of the Chinese economy. And more and more you're hearing people saying that what China may end up, particularly because of its demographic problems, caught in what they call the middle income trap. That China will get old before it gets rich. And if you get old before you get rich, well, then you kind of have a problem. But uh, I I think this sense that China, this the, the sense that China was just impossibly, impossibly powerful. I think it's pervaded a lot of people's thinking about China for the last 20 years, that there was nothing, any, that we were far more dependent on them and they were far more powerful and we were far more reliant. And I think that we've seen an, I think we may be about to see an inversion of that. 
I think we've mentioned before, I've mentioned before on the show, that the issue with China, China's government is that anytime anything has looked like it was going to go wrong in it, that a particular sector was going to be damaged uh, or that you know, members of the public were going to be burned on an investment, the Chinese government would get other parts of the economy to go in and basically yeah. prop that section up. And this joins everything together in a way. It puts a lot of you know, bad assets on everyone's books. And the question I think that should have been asked for the last while is, is the economy growing and developing at such a rate that basically those th- those problems are being inflated away or just percently becoming less? Or how much of everyone's books are conjoined and mm. how much bad assets are out there? China has a, a particular problem with this sector because it's it's just a very hot sector. They put in regulations to deal with it a couple of years ago um, because it was becoming a bit of a problem for them. But the, I think the, the question here, Michael, is how much other stuff is Evergrande linked to? Like, yeah. this is this is a, a Chapter 15 bankruptcy. I mean, they're trying to do an incredibly complicated debt restructuring. I think it's very unlikely to be the death of Evergrande. I don't know that the Chinese government will allow such a thing to happen. I think there should be, if you were involved with the Chinese government, there should be a real concern about contagion. Now, contagion is normally where effectively... Um, it's usually used in terms of a crisis, a financial issue spreading from either yeah. one firm to other firm or one sector to other sectors. And it can happen through a variety of means. Oftentimes, it's you know, it will start in one area. And when those people collapse, well, then it spreads to their suppliers because their suppliers don't get paid. And basically, it just it ripples out. I would wonder with the Chinese economy, if it's so connected that Evergrande actually going down would just kneecap the entire thing that it would spread everywhere. And you would think at that basis, Michael, that yes, they, they would not allow uh, Evergrande to fall. But again, a large part of the problems here, or why Evergrande can't actually deal with its debt, is because the Chinese government put in new regulations, largely because of entities like Evergrande uh, just taking out massive, massive amounts of debt in order to expand at an incredible rate. But I think the problem here, Michael, is is this. These people are communists. Yes. And so it seems, I would imagine if you ask most analysts, you know, given what we know about China, what should be done, they would point out that, well, if it is that interlinked, no major pillar of it can be allowed to collapse because that could take the entire thing down with a speed that would astound you. But that might not be how they're thinking. Communists have not generally been very good on you know, understanding of markets. Yeah, I think that's 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 cru- central to this, and it's crucial because you know the yet again it's that the old joke. You know, how would you find? How would you go to Killarney? Well, if I was going to Killarney, I wouldn't start from here. The pr- so many of these problems derive from the fact that the Chinese, well, a number of things. Okay, but two central things. First of all, the Chinese have a it is a centrally managed economy now. Centrally, the regional governments have quite a quite a degree of uh, power, but it's essentially planned economy. So they don't really like the idea that cert- that there are th- those sort of say special children in the economy that they have chosen and fostered because also there is a very large amount of corruption in this are going to fail. They believe that with proper prudent management and moving things around that they can they can they. 
we know from well from from experience we know from basic theory people like Schumpeter especially famously creative destruction that you have to let businesses that are failing fail that it's not simply a question of well they they, they rumble on and they cost a certain amount of money there are all sorts of long-term consequences for the wider economy if you don't allow failing businesses to fail particularly when you get into this kind of situation if, if you you just keep them going you keep them going you keep them going and they keep failing you t- we talked about your know, interconnectivity for example it's very hard to imagine that the if you have a, a problem at, at this level with the property business that you don't have significant involvement say for example with regional banks now we all know what happens when if so if they crash and they're not in the position to pay off uh, the debts of an overly overly leveraged regional banking system. If the regional bank starts to go, well, we all know that what the effect potentially, when one bank goes, two banks go, and when two banks go, well, then four banks go, and so the the dominoes start to fall. The other thing is the, the this sector is purely important because well, the economy, the Chinese economy, certainly was growing at a terrific rate all through the nineties and two thousands, and for very good reasons. There were times uh, when the rate would come down from the central, your big peaking would say your GDP has to grow at a rate of 9% this year. And if you couldn't generate genuine growth through your creative industry, one way to grow your economy, Gary, to get the figures, the GDP figures up, is through stimulating the, the the economy with construction you build a road you build a bridge you build up you build houses these all add these all create gdp they may not actually be wealth creating they may not actually have a purpose or a function they may not be meeting a demand but they will create your gdp it's like for example people wonder how the hell can russia show an increase in GDP during the war when its economy is fucked. And I do believe it's a kind of a contrary to some of our friends. I do believe the Russian economy in any kind of reasonable sense is fucked. That doesn't mean it can't pursue a war, but it's in, in a very bad way indeed. But when you have, the, you have the kind of spending that the Russians are doing on military hardware and the, the requirements for war, it's not unsurprising. In fact, it would be surprising otherwise if you didn't have an increase in GDP. So you have... A property, a property market which is on the back of a massive expansion in the economy and people getting into property, people wanting to buy their own homes, and so on. But also, we don't know, Gary, and this is something you, you have often said, and it's absolutely true. We have no clue how much of the property market in China has been created on the back of a desire to build GDP figures rather than to build homes for people that actually want them. That we we all know the stories going back years ago about you know the South China was the South China Mall, largest mall in the world, and there was like two shops open out of God knows th- maybe thousands of shops. These buildings, and we see this now happening: tower blocks, uh, flat apartment blocks, a uh, hundred miles north of Beijing being dynamited because there's nobody in them. So how how much how much of the figures coming out of China we can have a simple faith in? I do not know. I would not be. I do I would be very. I would be slow to put my pension in it, Gary. Put it that way. Uh, relying on 
any figures, and I don't mean just government figures, any figure coming out of China, I would take with a large pinch of pink Himalayan salt. Yeah, I, I think on this, maybe Evergrande, like, this is sorted fairly well. Um, you know, bankruptcy doesn't need to be the end of the road for no. certain things, and it can be dealt with. But then you look at things like, as you mentioned, Michael, uh, Country Garden, which is also not doing very well uh, and may default on its own. And then like the entire sector is is a cause for concern. The other cause for concern, I think, is uh, the amount of household debt that's held in China. Now, yes. when people talk about this, they tend to go, oh, it's fine because it's just a bit higher than you know, developed countries generally have. And they're right. China has a household debt of about uh, 280%, I think, if I'm... That might be slightly out of date, but it'd still be around that. And when you look at the US, it's like 250, 260. What is interesting about China is all of that debt has happened in the space of, you know, uh, 20, 15 to 25 years. So you're talking about massive, massive sums of debt being rolled up very quickly, which is different from what we see across most of the developed world. And it's, it's all collateralized on property. Anyway, we will not know the, the result of, of this for a while. It's concerning because we can't really tell the truth of a lot of the area, the issues tied to it. But this is not new. I mean, Evergrande has been in trouble since... 2021, I think, is when you you started seeing the impact of these regulations and you, you, they, there was talk of defaults and things of that nature. And obviously, before that, it had built up enough debt that even the Chinese government looked at it and went, that's going to be, like, that's not great. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we will be back next week um, and we will uh, we will see you then. All the best. Bye bye.